So this morning, um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that's probably pretty familiar to you. Um, You've probably read it and heard many sermons preached on this passage, and that's okay. The danger in the Christian life is not that we hear the same thing over and over. The danger is that we hear the same thing over and over, and we don't take what God speaks to us and apply that to our life. So stick with me. We're going to work through this for a little bit this morning and um, talk about a couple of different things. Let me set the stage for you. Luke 15 starts. Jesus is talking to two specific groups of people. Uh, If you look at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, they're outlined for us. Um, Specifically, it says tax collectors and sinners and then Pharisees and scribes. So Luke, as an author, sets us up, sets the context very quickly. Um, So we have people on opposite ends of the spectrum, really religious people and really not religious people. Uh, People that were looked up to and people that were looked down on. And so Jesus begins to teach them a couple of parables, well, three parables. Um, He teaches them a parable of a lost coin, parable of a lost sheep. And then he moves into a parable that um, is oftentimes called the parable of the prodigal son, Um, even though it's not a very good name for that parable. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But um, so that's where we are. Luke chapter 15. Luke set up the audience for us. And um, that audience is important. Right? Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes, uh, because they each represent somebody in the story. We'll talk about that in just a second. But Luke chapter 15, if you have it, you want to follow along with me. Um, Several passages. We're going to go ahead and read down to, I mean, several verses. We're going to go ahead and read down to um, verse 32. So, God's Word says, And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As I said a little bit ago, this parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son. And just for the sake of reference, the word prodigal means to be recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. And it's not a really good name for the parable because it takes the focus of the parable and it puts it on the younger son. When in reality, the parable or or the focus of this parable is really on the father. And, And we'll get to this, but it's really the father who is recklessly extravagant in this parable and not the younger son. In verses 11 and 12, the story begins, and we are told of a man that had two sons, and right away the younger of his two sons came and asked the father to give him his share of his father's property. Now, a second ago, I told you that the context for this parable is that there are tax collectors and sinners, there are Pharisees and scribes. And so as Jesus tells this parable, I I want you to get the full weight, I want you to get the full force of the fact that as Jesus told this parable, I think he had every intention for this parable to be incredibly shocking to the people who were listening for a variety of reasons. And it starts right away. This young son would have been due when his father died. Well, the way the inheritance probably would have worked based on what we know is the older son, the oldest son, would have been due twice as much as any other heir to the father's um, property. So in this case, we've got two sons. Uh, If things went along according to custom, the older son probably would have gotten two-thirds of the property when the father died. The younger son would have gotten one-third of it. And so this younger son comes to his father right away and and doing something incredibly Shocking! Ask his father to go ahead and give him his share of the property. Remember, the Middle East, even to this day, large areas of the Middle East are cultures based on shame and respect. So it would have been unbelievably shameful, and it would have shown a tremendous lack of respect for this young man to come to his father and say, go ahead and give me one-third of my property. Why? Because it's as if he was saying to his property, I, wish, I mean to his dad, I wish it was as if you were dead. Because I want your stuff. I don't want you any longer. I don't want to see you any longer. I just want your stuff. So either give me what's mine or go ahead and die. But get out of the way so that I can have my property. And I guarantee you that all of the Jewish people present, their jaws would have hit the floor at about this time. Because it was unheard of for somebody to do this. And so in this moment, the son comes to the father and he acts shamefully. They asked for his stuff. It says not many days later, he took off and, uh, and left. Went somewhere else. What else is surprising about the father's action here is that the father gives him the property so that he can probably liquidate it, get the money, and take off. In reality, based on some other things we know about what have, should have happened in this culture is uh, the father... Uh, in some cases may have started literally beating the young man, beating him off of his property and land uh, because it was so shameful what he did. And yet the father doesn't do that here. The father gives him his stuff. The young man liquidates it, takes off, goes to a foreign country and begins to squander it all based on what we see here 
in the text. We have a name for that kind of action in our culture. It's called spring break. That was a joke. But that's essentially what the young man does. He goes on an extended spring break and squanders everything that his father gave him. And the next few verses tell us what happened. The, the young man is in a foreign country. He spends his money. He gets to the point where he doesn't have any more. A famine comes along. He has to go out and he has to hire himself out to be a servant to someone else. And again, the shocking nature of the parable continues because the text tells us that he began to feed pigs. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, pigs aren't kosher. And in fact, they're ceremonially unclean. They're dirty. And so this young man has to go out and hire himself out to a pig farmer. And it's shocking. And he gets so hungry that the text says he's willing to eat what a ceremonially unclean, dirty pig eats. Now, I don't know if you think pigs are dirty or not, but pigs are dirty. Has anybody ever been to a pig farm? Anybody? Pigs are dirty. They're nasty. They stink. They smell. And so this guy has to hire himself out to work at a nasty, dirty, stinky, gross pig farm. But then in verse 17, the story takes a drastic turn because the text tells us that the young man came to himself and he develops a healthy case of humility. And in his mind, he begins to develop a plan to go back to his father. Read with me again verses 18 through 21. God's word said, God's word says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So this guy develops a plan, and it's basically this. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to apologize to my father, and I'm going to say to him, just make me like one of your servants. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I want to make restitution. So just make me like one of your servants. Just make me like one of your servants. And so the young man goes home, decides to go home decides to make a deal with his dad. And the text tells us that he takes off and he starts home and the father's sitting on the front porch and he sees the young man a long way off and the father begins to run to him. Now, the shocking nature of this parable continues because a dignified patriarch, a dignified landowner, would not run out to greet someone. That's something a child would do. And yet, in the passage here, we have this landowner, this wealthy father, running out to greet his son. And so he starts home. Or the young man has started home, and his dad runs out to get him. If you pay close attention to the text, the young man starts to repeat this speech that he was practicing. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. Make me as one of your hired servants, on and on and on. The dad gets him in a hug, and he's not able to finish it, right? He's, he's practiced the speech, just make me as one of your hired 
servants. And he gets to his father, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad cuts him off. He doesn't get to finish the make me as one of your hired servants because the father is so excited and so thrilled that the son is home. So he forgives him. He takes him in. He puts the best clothes on him. He gives him a ring. He puts shoes on his feet. He kills the fattened calf. And they start partying. And why? Because the father said, because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Don't miss that the story is still shocking to the people present. Because the young son shamed his father greatly, and yet the young son comes home to the father that he essentially said to, I wish you were dead. And the father celebrates and throws a huge party and begins to honor the young man. And then we move to the second act of this story. The dad goes out to see the older son or the older son comes in, begins to come in from the field where he was out working and he comes home and he hears that there's a party going on and so he says, what's going on? One of the servants says, your brother, he's come home, your dad's celebrating. And the older son gets incredibly angry at what's going on. He gets really angry. And so the father comes out to him, just like he did to the younger son. He comes out to him, and in verse 29, we see this. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. So this older brother is angry and I want you to catch this too. Don't miss this. The father even says, all that I have left is yours. Which means the fact that the father threw this big party for this young son meant the father was using the inheritance that was left for the older son to throw a party for the younger son. You with me? All that was left was the older son's. The dad says, it's still mine. I'm going to celebrate that my younger son is home. So the older son is ticked off. There's no other way to put it. He's angry at his father for welcoming the young son home. He's angry that the father has never thrown him a party. He's angry because the party is costing him. And ultimately, he thinks the father owes him something because while the young son's been out partying on his own, the older son's been working and obeying his father. And you can hear the disdain and the superiority he feels over the younger son when he talks to his dad and he says, this son of yours. And just a moment later, the father reminds him, hey, this is your brother as well. And so we have this unbelievable, shocking story that Jesus told. In this parable, it's very clear that the older son represents the tax, I mean, represents the Pharisees and scribes. 
It's pretty straightforward. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. They play a role in the story. Guess who the father is? Well, it's God. This parable is probably familiar to you, as I said. It's, you've probably read it many times. You probably know it by heart. And yet, as we look at this parable and as we look at the things that Jesus, I think, is trying to communicate in this parable, there are some things that we cannot miss. There are some things we have to grasp. As I said, I think we do the parable a disservice if we simply look at it and say, well, this parable is about the younger son and God loves sinners and welcomes uh, reckless sinners home and God is like that and it's great. And God is like that. But I think you miss the point of the parable if that's how you... Um, if that's how you interpret it. You miss the overall picture if you go just with that. So there are a couple of things I want to talk through related to this passage. First in this passage, I want you to see and I want you to grasp that Jesus radically redefines what it means to be lost and separated from the Father's heart. He takes everything that people thought of and turns it upside down. Jesus does that all the time in Scripture. It's what Jesus does. And He does it again here. Because to the Pharisees present, the Pharisees and scribes, the super religious people listening to what Jesus had to say, there was only one lost son in this passage. And it was the kid who went out and squandered his father's inheritance. But I think Jesus lays out something entirely different here. He doesn't negate the sin of the younger son. It's clear that the younger son was indeed quite sinful. He was arrogantly sinful, demeaningly sinful, awfully sinful. And his sin is not excused at all. His sin is eventually forgiven at a cost. It cost somebody for that kid to come home and be welcomed. It didn't cost the kid, it cost somebody. That sin is forgiven at great cost. The young son is welcomed home but I think what Jesus does in this passage is he makes it clear that there are ultimately two ways to be separated from the father's heart one is by willful dis disobedience and self-discovery the spring break mentality the other is by being moral and good but doing those things for the wrong reasons and with the wrong heart attitudes look both of the sons in this passage didn't want anything to do with the father. They wanted what the father had. Both of them. They're essentially the same in that way. One son is blatantly open about it. Dad, give me my stuff. I'm out. The other son seeks to control the father by saying, I've obeyed you. I've served you. I've stayed here. I've done everything. And you've never done anything for me. Why aren't you doing something for me? Because I didn't squander your stuff like this younger kid did. They both essentially just want what the father has and not the father. Both sons were wrong. Both sons were alienated from the father's heart. One by his goodness and one by his sin. And that's shocking right there, isn't it? in and of itself. 
Don't miss this. And we talk about this a lot here at Redemption, but it is so incredibly true. We still live in an area of the country that's known as the Bible Belt. And increasingly, it's not like it used to be. But there is still a large culture of goodness where we live. People who think because I do this or I go to this church or because my parents did this or because of whatever, because I keep these rules and I'm good and I'm not like that younger son, then I'm all right with God. And yet in this passage, it's very clear that both sons are lost. And it's why this parable is so strong because the only remedy for their lostness is the love of the Father. The only remedy for their lostness is the Father coming out to them and saying, come in, come home. One is separated by the, from the Father by their goodness, by His goodness. One by His self-discovery and open sin. You see, the gospel of Jesus is very clear. Our standing with the Father is not dependent upon our goodness. It's dependent upon the Father coming out to us and welcoming us in. And the gospel of Jesus is clear. Our Father, at great cost to His only Son, made a way for sinners to come home. And apart from the work of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit drawing us into the Father, we're all lost. It doesn't matter how bad or how good we are. We're all lost. And if you've been around Redemption Church at all, you've heard that a lot. And like I said, the danger for you is now to hear that and to not grasp it and internalize it and recognize it. The gospel of Jesus is that God made a way for you to be right with Him and that you can't do it on your own. Jesus did it at great cost. Your goodness means nothing. Your badness means nothing. Jesus paid the price. Jesus created the way for us to be right with God. And apart from God's work in our hearts and lives, we are alienated from God by our goodness, by our badness. It doesn't matter. Apart from Jesus, we're alienated. You with me? Everybody okay? Anybody mad? I'm not mad. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus redefines lostness here. And everybody present would have picked up on it. And everybody present would be shocked by it. But secondly, I want you to see something else. And this is where it's going to hit home. And I want you to understand, I'm not intentionally trying to step on anyone's toes, but we're going to get really real for a few minutes. Are you guys okay with that? You may be mad at me in a few minutes, and that's okay too. The danger for us in this room is not that we're going to be alienated from the Father's heart by being like the younger son. Because if that was the danger, we probably wouldn't be here this morning we'd be out doing something else entirely. We'd still be in the bed hungover, but we wouldn't be here. Now, maybe there are some people in the room who are like the younger son and wandering far from the Father. Jesus will welcome you home. But the danger for most of us in this room is not that we'll be like the younger son, 
the danger is that you and I will be like the older son. That we'll be alienated from God's heart and not even know it. Because we think we've got it all figured out. That's the danger for us in this room this morning. It is a real danger. It is an ever-present danger. I want you to deal with it and I want you to struggle with it and I want you to wrestle with it over the next few minutes. How would we even know if we're being like the older son? Right? The older son looks good. He stayed home. He obeyed. He did everything his father asked. While the young son was out partying, he was working in the field. How do we even know if we're like the older son? Because the older son looks great. The older son looks like a really good member of a local church in Augusta, Georgia because he's obedient and because he works hard and because he does the things he's supposed to do. Let's look back at the text for a minute. Verse 28 tells us very clearly that the older son did what upon hearing about the young son being home. He got angry. He got very angry. And why did he get angry? The text doesn't tell us specifically. Maybe because the younger son was being forgiven at great cost to the older son. Maybe because he thought the father owed him something. Because he had worked so hard and served so hard and obeyed and done everything that the father had asked him to do. Maybe he was angry because he did all the right things and yet this sinner over here was reaping the benefits of his father's love. And I have to be honest with you, I've been involved in church ministry for almost 20 years. I'm 36 years old. 18, I'm 37. Wow. Almost 20 years I've been involved in church ministry in some way, form, or fashion. And I'll go ahead and tell you that church people are the angriest people I've ever met. They're always angry and wanting to fight about something. I went to a church once, literally, where there was an argument in a, in a uh, church business meeting about the color of carpet that was going to be installed in the church. Church people are angry. Our culture is a culture of anger. There are lots of angry young men in our culture. It's just reality. I joke all the time that I have two emotions, asleep and angry. But if that's true, then there's a problem with me as well. But let me ask you, the text would seem to indicate here that the young son had a reason, I mean that the older son had a reason to be angry. But I think it goes beyond that. I think he probably would have been angry anyway. I think um, if this were a real guy, which it's not, it's a parable. But I have to ask you, does this overtone of anger, does it describe you? Are you angry? Because you've been faithful, because you've served, because you continue to serve and other people don't. And you expect God to give you something because of it. Are you angry because you look around and you're working hard and doing what you're supposed to do and other people aren't? 
And does it make you angry because of that? And if you are angry, if this anger defines you, is it because you're like the older brother? Your older brother-ish? Why are you angry? What is there to be angry about? You, we like to think when we're angry that we have a reason and that we're righteously indignant about something. But in reality, what does the gospel have to say about our anger? What does the work of the gospel in our lives have to do with our anger? Does the gospel do something in regards to our anger? It should, if the gospel's at work within us. Moving on, just another Pass verse down. Verse 29 and verse 30 tell us something else entirely. That the older son was focused on his duty, but there was no joy in his service to his father. It's very clear. There was no joy in what he was doing. He was being dutiful in order to control the father. He was being dutiful in order to get something back from the father. He was being dutiful not out of love for the Father, not because he wanted to serve the Father, not because he wanted to be joined together with the Father's heart, not because he wanted to honor and please his Father. He was dutiful because he wanted something back from it. He could care less whether he was close to the Father's heart or not, whether he found joy in his Father and vice versa. All he cared was that he got what he wanted. All he cared was that he got the respect due him. And let me ask you, does that show up? Does that attitude show up in your heart? Is there a lack of joy in your service to the Father? Is there a lack of joy in your service at this church? Is there a lack of joy in your life? Are you just dutiful because you think that's what you should do? And if that's the case, what does the gospel have to say about the lack of joy in our hearts and lives? Does it say anything? It should. So there are two very clear ways that we can be like the older brother. We can be angry. We can be dutiful with no joy. But finally, and I'm going to focus in for just a second, this passage shows us something else about the older brother and his attitude toward the younger brother. It shows us that the older brother was arrogant, he was prideful, and he felt superior to the younger brother because he was doing what he was supposed to do, and that kid wasn't. It's very clear that the older brother in this parable defined himself by the fact that he worked hard, that he was going to get what was coming to him, and that he was superior to his brother because he stayed home and worked while his brother went out and wasted everything. Let me give you a bit of truth. If we find our identity and our worth or our performance, or in anything else other than in Jesus, then we have no choice but to look down on those who don't perform like we do. Deal with that for a minute, okay? I'm going to read it again. If we, identify, if we find our identity in our worth or performance or anything else other than in Jesus, then we have no choice but to look down on those who don't perform like we do. Let's just... Let's just get real for a second. If we identify ourselves by where we live, if we say, hey, I live in the suburbs in an awesome neighborhood and that's part of what defines me, then guess what? I'm going to look down on everybody else who doesn't live in that same suburb. 
If I live downtown and I say, I'm a townie, this is me, this is part of my identity, this is who I am, and everybody else who doesn't live downtown, well, you're inferior to me because I live downtown and that's what defines me. If you live in North Augusta, if you live in Uganda, wherever, and you say, this is what defines me and I'm superior to you because you don't do what I'm doing, that's a problem, right? Because we're finding our identity in something other than the gospel and what Christ has done for us. This shows up all over the place. If we define ourselves by the fact that we have a lot of money in the bank, we can buy whatever car we want or house we want or do whatever we want, and we've earned that money because we work hard and we have a great job and we got our education and now I'm making money. Well, if that's what defines you, well, then by default, you're going to look down your nose at people who don't live that same way and haven't done what you've done. If that's what defines you and the gospel hasn't changed your heart, that's going to be the natural inclination of your heart. I could go on and on and on. In churches that I've been a part of, there has always been something that people have used to identify themselves to say, I do this, it's superior to the way you do it, so I'm going to look down my nose at you. It could be what we believe about education, whether it's homeschool versus private school versus public school. It could be the way we feel about discipleship. Discipleship should happen in a one-on-one relationship. It should happen in missional community. It should happen in a programmatic way. Whatever. We always find something that we identify ourselves by and we feel superior to someone else because of it. And when we do that, we're being like the older brother. We're being alienated from the Father's heart and we're not recognizing what the gospel has to say about all of us. Jesus radically redefined lostness in this passage. We're all lost apart from the work of the gospel in our lives. We're all lost. There are no good people and there are no bad people in this room. There are lost people and there are found people. And that's it. You with me? The only remedy for anger, the only remedy for a lack of joy, the only remedy for feelings of superiority is a recognition that apart from Jesus, we're all lost. But because of the work of Christ on the cross, we can be found and we can have the identity that God intends for us to have in Him. We're either lost apart from the work of Jesus in our lives or we're found because the Father has come out to us and brought us back in. But we're not superior to one another. Just because we believe one way about discipleship and not another way, just because we live one place and not another place, just because we educate our kids one way and not another way, doesn't make us superior. There are no good people in this room and there are no bad people in this room. We're all bad apart from the gospel. There are lost people and there are found people. There are people who have the heart of the younger son who are willingly living sinfully. There are people who have the heart of the older son who serve who 
stay home and do what they're supposed to do, and yet they're still alienated from the Father because the Gospel hasn't changed them. And there are people who understand that the Gospel changes everything. And that when we look at one another, it's through the lens of the Gospel. Lost or found, not good or bad, not right or wrong. Either Jesus has changed us or He hasn't. You hearing me? You with me? Who's angry? Wow. Somebody's angry. This passage is usually called the prodigal son because the younger son was extravagant in his sin. But in reality, the most extravagant person in this passage is the father. The young kid's got nothing on the father. Neither of these sons deserve to have the father come out to them. And both in some ways shamed the father greatly. One, because he said, Dad, I want your stuff. I don't want you. You might as well be dead. And the other, because the father came out to him and said, Come in, I want you to celebrate. And he didn't go. Both of these sons cared only for what they could get from the father. And yet, God's love, despite their sinfulness, was prodigal, extravagant, and expensive. And God was extravagant in the debt He paid for our sins. It was His Son. And our response to God should be a response of what? Thankfulness, worship? Absolutely. God acted on our behalf. It cost Him greatly. He was extravagant in the debt He paid for you and I. The father in this passage was extravagant in the way he forgave the young son. And our response to God's extravagance should not be to proudly run off and live any way we choose, seeking our own pleasure. It should be a response of humility and recognition that God has acted on our behalf. Despite the fact we didn't deserve it. Our response should be not sitting back and feeling superior and proudful and angry because we work so hard for the Father, but it should be an attitude of repentance and faith because the Father has come out to us and offered us an identity in Him. He's invited us back in despite the fact that we were alienated. The Christian life should be a life of repentance and faith over and over and over. Repenting and believing Our response should be not sitting back and doing nothing. The first two parables in Luke chapter 15 are the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. In both of those parables, somebody goes out to look for the things that are lost. Somebody begins the process of looking for the things that are lost. And when they find them, they celebrate. In the passage uh, passage we read, Luke 15, 11 through 32, nobody goes out to look for the younger son. The younger son just goes and he's gone. Our response should not be to sit back and wait. Our response should be action for and in light of the gospel. Are you with me? Our response to God's extravagant love is humility, faith, repentance, and action. 
right? There is an entire world outside these doors, regardless of what you think, that are lost and dying and going to hell because they don't understand the gospel. Because they have not been invited into the Father's house. Why not? In some cases, because they've never heard the gospel. There are people all around us that need to hear the truth that God's love is extravagant and that God made a, paid a great price to invite us home. Our response to the fact that that is true should be a response of action. Okay? Here's what happens in churches all the time. Churches exist and they exist and they exist and at some point in time churches stop being focused on the proclamation of the gospel and the gospel advancing and they start being worried about things that are happening in the church. They start being worried about just keeping things going, just making everything work the way we need it to work, making everything comfortable. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we cannot afford to do that as a church. If the advancement of the gospel is not our priority, then we might as well go ahead and shut the doors and walk away this morning. You with me? Amen. I don't need to say anything else. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for the opportunity once again to be present this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship, to sing, to hear your word. God, to be challenged, maybe to get angry even with what we've heard, but nonetheless, the opportunity to struggle with it and find what you're calling us to do this morning. God, over the next few minutes, as we close our time together, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds to bring us to a point of humility, to a point of repentance and faith, and a willingness to act because you acted on our behalf. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to